muscle. So in our cycling through the four measurables, for the time being, we've gone through the cycle for compassion, relating it, of course, to the three levels of suffering. It's good to remember what the immediate catalyst of compassion is. First of all, what it is, that it's not just, it's very important that it's not just feeling sorry for someone, uh, but it in fact is an aspiration to recall that its catalyst, the, the, the immediate cause for the arousal of compassion, is seeing others in distress, not able to help themselves, but also seeing that there's hope. If there's no hope, then compassion doesn't really arise. Um, now, for, for centuries, this may be really a perennial truth. I don't think it's, it's locked into any one particular type of time or place. Um, compassion can go astray. And so you'll recall for each of these, they're really extremely helpful, to recall what the false facsimiles, or the old terminology is the, or the near enemy, the near enemy of compassion is. Who knows right off the top of your head? Sadness, yeah, and it, it, not incorrect, not incorrect, but I'd want a little bit stronger term. Depression, Depression is certainly stronger, that's a stronger term. I want even a, a stronger term. Not pity, no, nope. although that would, that's an interesting issue. An even, even stronger one that I think really nails it, that is something that really can obstruct the arousal of compassion, is despair. Despair. The sadness and depression are interesting because on the one hand it's not incorrect. They're not those it's not incorrect to say that they are the false facsimiles. That is, it can really if I'm really feeling sorry for let's say Carlos, I'm I'm feel, you know, feel really sad, well yeah. Um, it can look like I'm being really compassionate, but maybe I'm just a weepy a weepy kind of person, you know. And of course it doesn't do him any good at all. And so it can look like compassion, but not it's not really. However, if, let's just say somebody, so uh, when I want to refer to somebody, just uh, anonymously, I'll say Jack and Jill. In other words, nobody at all. If I see that Jack really is in, in deep suffering, Carlos looks actually pretty okay. <laughs> but let's, ima let's imagine Jack's having, you know, really in terrible situation. And I attend to him, and I see really what suffering is going through, and I attend to him closely. And my heart opens to that epithetically. Well, as I'm doing so, do I feel chipper and light? Well, too bad for Jack, but good for Alan. No. That th there is an empathy, there's a sympathy, and that is a sadness. So this is the, this is really, it's, it's old wisdom, that sadness may give rise to, may arouse, it may lead to, there's the best word, it may lead to compassion. Sadness for another person, sympathy for another person, won't necessarily give rise to a real aspiration, but it may. And likewise, depression. One may be depressed about such, you know, the level of ethics in the world. That's a good thing to, to be depressed about. And then after a while, that the depression is there, one becomes vividly aware of just how, how much just unethical behavior, awful behavior in the world. And then, out of that might grow some little light bulb coming up above, ah, maybe I could do something. You know, maybe I could lead a really ethical life. You know, just for starters. Maybe I could do something. Maybe I could help introduce ethics into the school system in a way that is good for the religious and for the not religious. Oh, maybe there's some real possibility here. So the depression could lead to compassion, which is then the active aspiration. May we be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. But if it's despair, 
that's pretty well blocked. The sadness is there, the depression is there, but despair, as I understand the word, means sadness and hope is gone. I am despairing, that is, all hope is gone. Well, if all hope is gone, then you're not going to think about how can we get out of this, right? So I think despair is really, is the near, the false facsimile, that which can really look like compassion, and it's not. And this has been true for a very long time. So this is cited in Buddhaghosa's classic treatise in the, let's say, the fifth century. And it's been true before then, and it's true after. And there have been certainly phases of history that were very, very dark. The Second World War, people living in France in the Second World War for month after month after month. For England during the Blitz, month after month. There were, I don't think there were really any really great days, you know, in that kind of situation, so much fear and sadness and anxiety and so forth. And then if there have been types of disease, the Black Plague, for example, where it looked like maybe civilization was coming to an end. It was something, some enormous percentage of Europe, European population just got wiped out, one-third or something like that. It's a massive percentage. So clearly there have been phases, times and places in history where you could spend years or decades of a life and just be surrounded by misery and fear. But never in recorded history, I think, have we on a, on a regular basis, living in a lovely place like Phuket, if you check the internet, which I hope you're not, uh, <laughs> but if you were, then you will notice, of course, what you see on the internet. That is, when I say the internet, I'm referring to news. I mean, there's all kinds of things on the internet, but right now I'm referring to news. Um, you know what it's like, whether it's the evening news on television, radio news, internet news. And so it's, it's, it's about 90% bad. It's really just overwhelmingly negative. It's about a woman who kills her children. It's about the latest genocide, the latest bombing, the latest this, that, the other thing. It's so we are running an experiment on ourselves as a human species that is without precedent for the whole 100,000 years that our species has been here. And that is how much suffering can we be exposed to and not just feel crushed under the weight. So it's an interesting kind of weird experiment that nobody really decided to do, but there it is. That's what's happening. And so, while mudita, empathetic joy, has always been one of the four crusaders, one of the four, and I'm using crusaders without any historical reference, crusade to balance the mind and, and, and emotions and so forth, as it's always been one of the four, you know, a full-fledged member, it's always been important, uh, now perhaps more than ever before. And that is, I, I refer to compassion, well, in India, in Iceland, in Brazil, and anywhere, one could fall into depression uh, for various reasons, internal and external. And the antidote among the four measurables, when you're slipping into just a lingering sadness, into depression, let alone into despair, among the four measurables, the antidote for sadness, depression, despair, is empathetic joy. Right? Empathetic joy among the four, so that's how they support each other. So if, just a little quiz time, love and kindness goes astray, it falls into what? When, when, it goes, when, it goes, when, it falls, when it goes astray, what's the false facsimile of love and kindness? Yeah, I want the self-centered attachment. The self-centered attachment, yeah, that's what it is. That's quite so. And then the antidote is what? Somebody besides Carissa, Carissa just came out of CEBTT, so she's very fresh. What's the Among the four immeasurables, what's the antidote? If you're falling into self-centered attachment, just feeding me, 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 me. No. Equanimity. 
equanimity, that even heart that evenly attends to everyone without distinction. Compassion falls astray, falls into grief, into despair. Empathetic joy is the remedy. And so we see, I mean, it's just, in a, in a way, this is just good common sense, but it's deep and profound common sense. And that is, if we are so narrowing the mind that we're seeing only the negative, and it's overwhelming, it's like a vortex sucking us into it, even to the point that we can't see any light anymore, we're kind of like drawn into a black hole of just the focus on misery and then the causes of misery and like there's no hope, uh, then what's happened here is the mind has gotten too small and it's focusing on a very important facet of reality, but has, it is missing the larger picture. It's not, in other words, it's not realistic. It's not realistic. To just to focus on one aspect of reality and think that's the whole picture is not realistic. And so empathetic joy comes in, is introduced to kind of rescue the compassion or simply the human being that's fallen into grief or despair by saying, you know, you're not being realistic here. There are other elements of reality that are just as real as what you're attending to. And what you're attending to is real and important, but it's not the whole picture. And to maintain your balance and to be any good to anybody, get out of that ditch and start attending to some other aspects of reality that will balance it out that are, again, equally real. So this is not, it's not something sappy. It's not trying to look, through, look at reality through rose-tinted glasses. Look on the bright side of the Jewish Holocaust. You know, that's just, that's stupid talk. There wasn't any bright side. It was black evil all the way through, and likewise the black plague and genocide and, and so forth and so on. So there are many aspects of reality where there isn't any, isn't any um, good side. At the same time, we know even in that horrible episode of human history, among the German people themselves, there was staggering compassion and courage. We, I think you all know of cases of that. I mean, Liam Neeson, what was that book? Schindler's List. There was just one case, it, but it was, of course, factually based. So even in the dark times, there are people who rise with nobility, with compassion, with selflessness, really w willing to put their own lives and their the lives of their families on the line. And so that does balance out, and there were many cases like that. So, empathetic joy. Empathetic joy. What is it? Among the four measurables, empathetic joy is the only one that is flat out an emotion. Okay? It is an emotion. Loving kindness isn't. It comes with an emotion. Compassion comes with an emotion. Empathetic joy is an emotion. Okay? It is taking delight. It's attending with satisfaction, with gladness, with rejoicing, being happy. It's, it's deliberately generating a sense of happiness. And it's kind of refreshing to know that, in fact, you can generate an emotion and not simply be subject to emotions. And the, and the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy is a really good case in point there. Being happy about what? Well, when we say empathetic, of course, this means we're taking delight in others, and now here it is. Empathetic joy is taking delight in others' joys and their virtues. And their joys and their virtues. And their joys, I mean their success, their joys, their happiness, their whatever, their felicity, their good fortune. Their good fortune. Somebody wins a lottery, your next door neighbor wins a lottery, and they're really, really happy about it. There's, not, there's nothing, no reason not to. Say, oh, well, good for you, I'm glad. Boy, enjoy your money. Hope it brings you a lot of happiness. Maybe you can do a lot of good with it. You know, and enter into it with it. And it makes them happier. 
You know, and they say, oh, you're not just responding with jealousy. Well, it wasn't my money, whatever, you know. And so it can be something as, frankly, as trivial as just winning a bunch of money. But so we all know that hedonic pleasure goes from the trivial to the very, very meaningful. So empathetic joy is taking delight in others' hedonic well-being, their good fortune, their happiness. Then we can go beyond that because, of course, we want to bring as much wisdom as we can into each of these four measurables. And so what lies beyond hedonic well-being? Well, let's go classic. Let's go right back to the, the meditations on loving-kindness. When we see people leading wonderfully ethical way of life, benevolent, charitable, generous, kind, we simply note it. They may be religious, not religious, meditators, not meditators, old, young, whatever, but when we just see people bringing virtue to the world, bring ethics to the world, bring us courtesy to the world, even courtesy, you know, like courtesy on the freeway. When somebody's trying to get into one lane and somebody actually slows down, they can, they can get in. They won't get a Nobel Prize for that, a Nobel Peace Prize, but that was nice. You know, a lot of people just speed up after me, Buster. You know, <laughs> move out of the way. I want to get to my destination. I don't care about you. And so when people, you know, hit the brake instead of the accelerator, <laughs> you know, hey, good, you know, you want to drive back and right, what, what good on you, mate? You know, it's good, that, but that's a nice thing. And so something, but little, whether it's a little tiny thing like that of allowing somebody into the traffic, this is an act of kindness. This is now correlated with that genuine happiness that arises from virtue, from ethics, right? So we can attend to that. We can attend to people who are really devoting themselves. And again, they may be religious or not religious, Buddhist or not Buddhist, but really cultivating themselves, that is, uh, devoting themselves to cultivating inner causes of happiness. It may be a very devout Christian. Oh, a lot of my relatives, my mother's mother was a very devout Christian. And she would read the scriptures. She had such faith. And she was such an incredibly sweet and loving and gentle and patient person. Really, I, I wish I could be like her in so many ways. Uh, but she would, she would be focusing on the scriptures and meditating on them and talking about them and her love of Jesus and so forth. And it really enriched her life. There's just no question in my mind at all. So obviously she's long gone. But that way, and she was such a benevolent person. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better grandma. And so being a really great grandma, you know, but also a really profoundly religious person, taking delight in that, whether it's a Christian meditating on their scriptures, a Buddhist practicing shamato, or doing a three retreat or what have you, for people who are really devoting themselves to the cultivation of a deeper level of well-being. So technically we'll call that the, the genuine happiness that arises from samadhi where it's inward. They may not be doing much out in the world, but they're going inwards and really cultivating mindfulness, equanimity, compassion, etc., etc. And then there are those, of course, who are really devoting themselves to the, the highest genuine happiness, cultivating wisdom. And there have been such people in the Christian tradition, the Jewish, and so forth and so on, but really seeking the truth that liberates and doing so with great dedication, great focus, and that is just, I think, it's just one of the most wonderful things that human beings can do. Um, so, seeing multiple levels there. And then we can turn it right around again and think then there are all also individuals, and many, many names come to mind. But let's take the Dalai Lama, because he's such a wonderful example of this, who, if, you, if you, you know him a little bit, even a little bit personally, or know about him personally, he's a natural contemplative. He's a natural contemplative. He's one who would just love to spend his days from 3.30 in the morning until the end of the night just meditating. He really is a very avid meditator. And he's 70, 75 years old now. 
you would think maybe we can give him a break and he could just retire and go into lifelong retreat. You think that's going to happen? I mean, hasn't he done enough? He was, he was king when he was 15. They made him king when he was 15 years old. So, gosh, that's 60 years of public service. One could think, well, you know, we can go off to retreat now, but there's just no way that he would, he would, that he would give, him that, give himself that luxury. Maybe he'll get a week here, maybe he'll get a week there, you know. And what's the rest of the time spent doing? Devoting himself to help, help, uh, helping others find genuine happiness. So he's teaching Dharma. And in Buddhism, we say the greatest gift that one person can give to another it's not money, it's, not, it's, it's, it's dharma. It's giving them the tools, giving them guidance, whatever, so that they can find genuine happiness, they can discover their own Buddha nature. And that's what he's doing pretty much all the time. And so thinking about him and so many other teachers, some are your own teachers, Mingyur Rinpoche and others, and of course we're not confining, there's nothing sectarian about this. There are Christians, there are very devout Muslims with good hearts, benevolent hearts, Jews and so forth. And of course, it's not just religious people. There are people who are just, they would call themselves humanists, but really devoting themselves to trying to help other people find greater happiness inwardly, genuine happiness. So we bring no sectarianism, no ideological barriers into this, but then taking delight in that as well. So there's the bandwidth. There's the bandwidth of empathetic joy. And it's always been, always been important but I would say in conclusion, and I didn't go on so long today, uh, in conclusion then, while these have been always important, perhaps never so important as right now in this world, where we are so exposed, we're so aware of, and be almost be forced to be aware of, just how much suffering and evil there is in the world. And here we're taking delight in the opposite of suffering, of joy, and the opposite of evil, virtue, and just taking delight in it. And coming back to William James' statement, for the, for the moment what we attend to is reality. As we attend single-pointedly to the joys and the virtues of others, that becomes real for us, and it uplifts the heart. It lifts the heart. It, it restores the sisu, which is the term from Pali, uh, from, Pali from Finnish, uh, and it's semshuk in Tibetan. It just, it, it, the strength of the spirit, I think that would be the, but it doesn't really have that zing in English, but it, it it restores the courage, the, the vision, the spirit, the fortitude. All of those words kind of more or less refer to semshuk, the strength of the heart-mind. And so that's what empathetic joy is good for. That's important. As His Holiness said, if you lose hope, then there isn't any hope. <laughs> that's it. So do whatever you need to do, get your hope back. Whether it's for your own meditative practice, whether it's for world peace, if you lose hope, there's no hope. So let's not lose hope. And let's practice.
Let's begin as always by settling the body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. Settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. For a little while, settle your mind in its natural state by taking the space of the body and the tactile sensations of the breath as the object of mindfulness. Attend to the sensations of the breath as you set your mind at ease in stillness in the present moment, clearly illuminating the sensations of the breath wherever they most distinctly arise in the body.
And now as we move as we move to the meditative cultivation of empathetic joy, let's call, let's follow the classic sequence. Bring to mind first of all, if you can, someone you know who really quite regularly, as a matter of temperament or way of being, exudes a quality of good cheer, of lightness, of buoyancy. person who lights up the room. Attend closely. On this person's own quality of well-being, the kind of joy that is quite infectious, can often lighten the hearts of others, bring them a sense of good cheer as well. As you attend closely, with each out-breath, simply take delight in this person's joy, in this person's well-being. If we follow the Mahayana approach to the cultivation of empathetic joy, we in fact do bring in an aspiration as we attend to this person, as we breathe out. We may arouse the yearning, may you be never separated from a joy that is free of sorrow. But principally it's one of taking simply delight in this person's well-being. And if you wish, with each out-breath, you may, you may imagine from the same orb of light at your heart a light of your own joy, embracing, suffusing, mingling with the joy of this other person, sharing joy as you embrace this person in the light of your own delight.
let your attention rove to another person or even a group of people who are experiencing success, good fortune. Attend closely with each outbreath. Take delight in their good fortune. Now shift the attention to a deeper level. Again, we are tending to sentient beings, not just to sensations or pleasures or pains. Shift your attention now to individuals or communities who experience the genuine happiness of leading wonderfully meaningful lives, ethical lives, benevolent lives. offering their good to the world, seeking to avoid inflicting harm. There are many such. Attend closely. And attend to their happiness and the virtue that arouses such well-being. Breathe out this light of joy, rejoicing in their virtue, their happiness. like a butterfly going from one flower to another, alighting where it will. Let your attention rove from one individual, one community to another. There are so many. There is so much good being brought to the world each day.
attend to those who are devoting themselves quietly, perhaps in solitude, perhaps even sustained solitude, months or years on end, to cultivating their hearts and minds, a deeper dimension of genuine happiness. They are already blessing the world by devoting their hearts and minds single-pointedly to the cultivation of virtue. It's already good. We don't need to wait for them to come out and be of active service. They're already being of service, quietly. Breathe out your joy taking delight in their joy and their virtue. Take delight in those who are devoting themselves to liberation, to awakening, to knowing reality as it is, seeking out those truths that liberate, that free the mind of afflictions, dispel all obscurations, that veil our own Buddha nature. Those who are on the path, and those great liberated beings of the past, present, and even the future within the Buddhist fold, taking delight in the practice of the great bodhisattvas, the arhats, the enlightened ones.
take delight in those who are serving as guides to help others recognize what are the true causes of suffering, what are the true causes of happiness. We're focused on leading others to genuine happiness, to their own fulfillment and true freedom. These really are the lights of the world. Attend to their works, to their compassion, the joy they experience, the joy they arouse in others, and take delight with every outbreath. Breathe out the light of your own joy. mind center, attend to the good works, the wonderful works of your own teachers, Tony Karam, Lama Michael Conklin, Mingyu Nambuche, Tsoknyu Nambuche, His Holiness, so many others that have blessed your lives and the lives of so many other people. Take delight in the sharing of the gift of Dharma. Just a little while, release all appearances and objects. Release it all and let your awareness simply come to rest in its own nature. Quietly resting in the knowing of knowing.
on Lhasa. It's, it's probably obvi- already obvious from that meditation that it, as one arouses that type of joy, uh, especially when it's not simply the joy in somebody else's joy, but the joy in somebody else's acts of kindness and so forth, that it really starts blending rather seamlessly into a sense of gratitude. Yeah? Like it's the same. The sense of gratitude is an expression of joy. I think it's a wonderfully wholesome way of viewing grat- uh, gratitude. Um, I think sometimes, I don't know how often, but if someone shows us an act of kindness, then gratitude arises. But it's sometimes, maybe it's true, that it's kind of like, oh, now I'm in debt. You know, like this person did, okay. I mean, it, it, one of the common things is somebody invites you over to their house. No, some, you invite somebody over to your house. And they give you a really nice, let's say, bottle of wine or a really nice dessert. They bring it with them. A really nice one, though. You know, maybe more expensive than the whole meal you prepared. <laughs> and you think, oh, my goodness, that was a really good bottle of wine. Now, what do I have to do for them? I better get something really good. Jeez, I'll have to talk it over with my spouse. We, we, we have to do something really good for that. was a really expensive <laughs> bottle of wine. Why did they have to make it so expensive? Now we've got to really give them something even nicer. You know, so it can really feel like a burden, you know. And so then that's not so much fun. And so I know, I know people like that, at least on occasion. Nobody's just like that. But if they receive something, they immediately think, oh, now I've got to give back. And it's kind of like, like a little timer is set. I've got to give something back. Okay, now I've given back. Okay, now we're even. Oh, you gave me something else. Oh, no. (laughs) Now I have to give you something. Now I have to think about it again. I have to give me this, you know, this kind of thing. And so here's another whole spin on that. And that is, you know, the Mayana Mayana orientation towards this is developing a sense of gratitude towards all sentient beings. And you don't pay off the debt until they're all perfectly enlightened. In other words, don't hold your breath. <laughs> you know? But again, the bodhisattva is not for countless eons, for as long as space remains, as long as sense of beings remain, thinking, oh my goodness, am I in debt? I've got to do this for Car- Carissa, and I get, oh, hi, 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 Paula, and then there's Maria, and I'm, oh, Glenn, what i got to do for him, and who's next? Oi, 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 one more, Joachim, and there's... Man, I just, I'm, I'll never get out of debt, you know? So here's something, it's a, just a fresh spin on it of gladly embracing the gratitude and know that, well, here we are. That's what life is all about, to re- repay the kindness of others. So that's good. Much lighter spin on the sense of gratitude. Not such a burden. So my mail is building up here. I just picked up a few that were waiting for me, so I have no idea what's in them. What I'm going to kind of emphasize here Okay, oh, oh, yeah, this is something we had before. Uh, air conditioning. <laughs> That's practical. I've got one on Buddha nature here. I've got something that, but there's air conditioning. Uh, now, it is true, the, the AC is turned off at night by the staff. Yeah, it's expensive. I mean, Klaus is losing money on us. Every time we come here, he loses more money. And so, and it's pretty high ceiling. It used to be much higher. Uh, and so it's really expensive to run to this volume with all the heat out there. It's quite expensive to run AC. So they're happy to do it, but they know that we really want to make use of the meditation hall pretty much all day. So they keep it on all day, not just for the two hours that we collectively are here. Um, but of course they turn it off at night. And so that's just so they can gradually approach breaking even on having retreats here. So that's why that's done. Uh, each morning students turn it on, that's just fine. 
but because the controls are not, e are not easy to use, although they appear easy, uh, it's, always, it's not always cold by the 9 a.m. meditation. Yeah, that would be kind of nice to have it cold enough by then. So we've decided 26 temperature, yeah. This is what we did on the CEBTT. And was it 26 everybody agreed on? So there we're good. So, you know, you some people have hot bodies, some people have cold bodies, but we found 26 degrees was, uh, made everybody homogeneously unhappy, which was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was really unhappy. They were like, well, it doesn't quite suit me, but I can get by. You know. And so there we are, 26. Uh, we also need to set the fan speed to control to medium. So, so here's the, the word of wisdom. Uh, if you're the one who's setting the, the air conditioning in the morning, 26 is the number. Medium is for the fan to balance the noise versus the actual cooling effect. Good? To minimize distraction of students, I suggest one of two options. Have the staff turn the AC to 26 medium every morning by 7 a.m., uh, the time yoga class starts. Um, I don't mind asking the staff, but is this something we could just as easily do ourselves? If it's not, then we ask the staff. But are there people coming in every morning at 7? I don't know. Yes? Then why don't we just take it, you know, one less thing to ask them to do, since it's kind of, this is our room. So anybody who's coming in at 7 o'clock, if you can remember, 26 degrees, medium fan. Good enough? Okay. This is really tough stuff. Um, and let's see. The air conditioning must also be on. Oh, that's, a, that's something I wouldn't have figured out, you know. <laughs> but it mustn't be off. It, actually, it, it can be 26, medium, but off. You know, it won't work. It takes me a, a while. I'm, I'm really Neanderthal when it comes to kind of things. So that was for me. And it says, duh. <laughs> That's for me. Uh, or tell the staff not to... No, we, we can't do that. We, can't, we, we cannot ask the staff not to turn it off. It just costs them lots and lots of money just to keep it on all night so we can have a cool one at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, since I have mastered the way of AC, ah, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I'd be happy to have, I'd be the designated person to turn on the AC each, each morning. I'm, the, I'm at the yoga class every day. Brett, this is a very nice offer. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That's a very nice, generous offer. So just, Brett takes care of it. If you're here every morning at 7 o'clock, jolly good, nice offer, excellent note, very helpful. Thank you. Including the duh, because that's for me, people, people like me. Good. Let's see if this is also practical. That was really practical. Oh, yeah. There's a very deep one, uh, more theoretical. But, but very, none of these questions are bad. Some are just a bit more abstract, uh, theoretical than others. Uh-oh, here's one that I'm going to probably... It's one of those... Yeah. I'm going to read this one off camera. I will read it, but I'll, I'll read it not right now. And I'll get back to that on, on tomorrow. So, we have three... They're all good questions. This one... Long. Um, first of all, let, but let's just go really practical, because again, I'd like to, I don't want to have any of the afternoon sessions just reading, because here we are, a whole bunch of live people. I'd like to keep the dialogue going, have the microphone moving around. So I'll intersperse some of these written questions. I don't mean to ignore them, but overall, I like this to be dialogue and not just me monologuing all day long or for two hours. So, questions or comments that are practice-oriented. We just ventured into awareness of awareness, or shamatha without a sign, shamatha without an object, and there it is, awareness of awareness, shamatha without an object, shamatha without a sign, shamatha without a support. Those are all synonymous, exactly synonymous. And as Mingyur Nambuchi, somebody cited him today to me, said this is the gateway to Dzogchen, exactly right. 
exactly, man. I'm not here to debate with him, but yeah, that's right. It's still, it is shamatha, but it's right on the cusp. It's really just a marvelous shamatha practice that's just offering itself to go right from shamatha without an object to Dzogchen practice itself. So it's excellent. Yeah. So questions about that or any of the four measurables? Anything come up? Insights? Observations? Otherwise, I'll, go to, I'll start reading. Yes, we'll start with Jenny. But these are about practical questions of the practice we are doing. Okay? So there are lots of other really good questions, but here we are for now seven weeks. So already click, one week went by. So my aspiration, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning, but my aspiration for all of you is I have no notion of numbers that, oh, I hope you achieve the fourth stage before eight weeks has gone by. Nothing of that sort. But I do have an aspiration. One could even call it a goal. And that is when we all disperse on what November 12th, I think it is, that we all leave here with a sense of confidence. That the practices you've been introduced to, you know how to practice them, you feel confident if you want to continue, you really feel, yep, this is something, I, I've got it. Now I can, I can do this on my own. That's what I'd hope for. And for that, having this time of discussion focused on the really practical elements, the things that come up in the practice, is I think the best way we can spend our time. And then when there's a bit of extra time, then we can go for the more background theoretical issues, which are also very imp important and interesting. Go ahead, Jenny. Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I want to ask something regarding the practice of nature of mind. Is good? What, I can uh, but yeah, but let's just focus on the terminology, because this is a major terminology that uh, Mingyur uses in a rather unique way. I'm not using that terminology, so if you can stick with the terminology we're using for this retreat. I'm absolutely not saying one is better than another, mm -hmm. but there is some fuzziness okay. around the way he's using, or at least his students, this is what I'll say, there is some fuzziness about the way some of his students have understood that term. Yes. I'm not saying there's fuzziness on his part, okay? Because yes. I've heard him say a lot of things. So okay. in terms of terminology that we're using in this retreat, can you pose your question? Yes. Um, you say that we have to point directly to the space of the mind. We yes. direct, well, in uh, settling the mind in its natural state. Yes. That is one aspect of the practice. Yes. And then the, in this space, the um, thoughts and the memories and image, all that, and there is... Um, someone who is watching. <laughs> okay. It certainly seems to be. Uh, uh, watching uh, where they appear, they... Right. Okay. Sure. My answer is, is the same, the, the space, the thoughts, the... Um, the, war, the Watcher. watching observer, yeah. Yeah. all that is the same. The Are space is the... Cons is, is are different things or are the same thing? They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Let's take, let's take an analogy. For a very short time, for a matter of seconds, I'm going to, from my perspective, I'm back here a little bit, so I'm going to attend to the space of this room and all the people in it. So I, I need to keep a real panoramic vision, but everybody's in my field. So I'm attending to the space of the room. Nobody's in focus, but everybody's in my field of vision. And so I'm attending to the space of the room and all the people in it. I see movement of bodies around the room. And I know that there's a person here who's doing this, and I'm going to stop. Okay? So I was attending to the space of the room and the people moving about in it, even little movements. I could see them. And then there was somebody doing it, this person, right? Well, the space of the room is quite obvious. The space of the room is not the same as the people in it. 
all of you can leave. We will, soon. And the space of the room, and I could be sitting here, I could say, okay, you all go off to dinner, I'm going to just watch the space of the room. And you would all presumably head out, except for the click-clickers for 15 minutes. Um, but there it is, the space of the room would remain, but everybody's left. And, but I'm still, I'm still here, right? And so the space of the room is not the same as the contents, as the people in it, right? Moreover, my awareness isn't the same as the space of the room, nor is my awareness the same as the people in the room. So the three are distinct. They, they are distinct. Uh, even in Chittamatra, even in mind-only view, in the Yogacara view, even there, they don't say the subject and object are the same. I have three, peop I have three pieces of paper on the, on, the, on the chair in front of me. Uh, the smallest piece of paper and the paper in the middle are the same. That is, if you look for the smallest piece of paper, it's this one. If you look for the piece, piece of paper in the middle, it's this one. They are simply the same, right? So that same, same is a total equivalence. But these are not the same. Okay? That doesn't mean that they're absolutely separate, but it does mean that they are distinct. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. Any more practice? Yes, go ahead, Paula. It's about awareness of awareness practice. Yeah, good. For me, I, I always have feel that it, this practice is very related to my visual consciousness. Like, uh -huh. it's very subtle. Like, if I focus on, on, some, on something, mm -hmm. I can, at least I feel that I'm in awareness of awareness, in attending the awareness. But if I lose focus, mm -hmm. like, my consciousness is not clear mm -hmm. and... If I close my eyes, I, I lose it. So I don't know if I'm doing it wrong or... <coughs> there's doing it wrong, there's doing it in a beginner's fashion, and then there's doing it with greater and greater efficacy. More and more correct until you simply realize the substrate consciousness directly. So there's a, there's a whole spectrum there. Um, if your practice of awareness of awareness is still leaning on dependent upon your visual awareness, I'd have to say it's not, that's not really correct. It's not really correct. Yeah. There, are, there are incorrect ways of practicing. So in this practice, here's how, here's how Padmasambhava, in, in his, his initial, the very first set, very first phase of this practice, as he teaches it in natural liberation. Uh, and, and before I say that, I'm going to back up just a little bit. This morning, I went in, in a little bit unconventional way, but unconventional at the same time completely, you know, in accordance with the tradition. But I did it as we did it to show you the distinction between, number one, there's mindfulness of breathing, then there's settling the mind. That's not the same, so we go back to distinctions. Settling the mind in its natural state, attending to thoughts and images, is definitely not the same as following the breath. So we're attending to the foreground, the, the distinct thoughts and images that come up, and so forth. But then we shifted focus and looked at the background, that's not the same as the foreground, any more than the stage is the same as the players who come and go on the stage. The stage is always there. The space of mind is always there. Thoughts, oh, they're not always there. They come and go. So each, that's different. But then as we are tending to the space of the mind, then I invited you to now attend very closely and be aware there's not only an appearance of the space of the mind there, that is, if we, if, if we ask, what are you experiencing? In that phase, 
You're attending to the space of the mind from which thoughts emerge into which they dissolve, right? As you're attending just to that space, here's a question. What are you experiencing? I'm going to turn that into a real question. When you're attending to the space of the mind, what are you experiencing? Anybody? You're, you're experiencing? Clarity. But somebody else said? What's that? Alma. You, that, that's an elegant term for it, but let's use the little bit or, more ordinary term. It's not incorrect at all. Uh, but yeah, the space of the mind. So, I mean, kind of like, now we can say, duh. When you're attending the space of the mind, what are you experiencing? Well, you're experiencing space of the mind. That's certainly true. Are you experiencing, if you are really single-pointed, let's imagine, you're probably not quite there yet, but if you're experiencing single-pointedly space of the mind, are you experiencing anything else? Louise? Awareness. You're not only aware of the space of the mind, but you're also aware of being aware. And so there are two things going on there, right? There's, there's the space appearing to me, but I'm also, I know. Awareness is happening. Nominally speaking, I'm aware. So there are two things taking place there. There's an appearance of space, but there's also an experience of being aware of that space. And then we withdraw the attention, the interest, the focus, away from space, the final frontier. And we, we withdraw right into awareness itself. So at this point, this has nothing to do with vision at all. Even the space of the mind has nothing to do with vision. And so now, having said that, that's why I gave each step, that we don't confuse mindfulness of breathing with, with settling the mind, that we don't confuse attending to thoughts to attending to the space of the mind, and that we don't confuse, which means to fuse together, that we don't fuse, confuse, attending to the space of the mind with awareness of awareness, which is totally uninterested in the space of the mind, or any other appearance at all to awareness. It's just interested in what's that immediate experience of being aware. So having said that, how does Padmasambhava lead one into this practice. Here's how, and we'll do this tomorrow morning, but I'll give you a, I like to loop, give you a sneak preview. He said, all right, now just rest your awareness in space. And don't attend to anything. Take nothing as an object. Just rest your awareness in space. Don't even attend to space. Just rest there. But don't do anything. Don't meditate on anything. Don't take anything as an object. Just sit there. And even though the eyes are open, it really has nothing to do with vision, right? So here's something I would, but so to get over that habit, it's a very short habit, it should be very easy to break, right? To get over that habit, tonight, when you get into bed, so the lights are, the lights are out, you finish the day, and maybe you're going to the supine position for your last session, there, and, and hopefully you're a little bit tired, then get there and then close the eyes, Draw your awareness inwards. And as you're there, just lying on the bed in the supine position, just note, oh, I'm not dead. You know? And I'm using that phrase because there's a dead phase. It's a very brief, transient period of being dead. A lot of people wish it would go on forever, but you can't have everything. You know? The blackout phase, you know, the blackout phase. The white light, the red light, and then blackout.
ordinary death, you're pretty much not conscious of anything. So just noting that, that even though the lights are out, your eyes are closed and everything, there's still something there. And that is awareness is there. It has nothing to do with vision. So that'll be a way to break the habit. Okay? Good. Anything else practice related? Maybe take one more and then I'll get to one of these questions. Yes, but um, Patricia. Uh, back, back here, in, in the black, Patricia. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, in this practice of awareness, of, of awareness yeah. what uh, when thoughts arise? Yeah. Because you sh- you suppose to just be aware or be aware, but yeah. then it will happen that thoughts will arise. They do, and yeah. So what do you do? You set your, you go back to the settling your mind in the, in the natural state? No, if you had to backshift or downshift to settling the mind every time a thought came up, well, I think you've just, <laughs> just awareness of awareness goodbye. <laughs> no. So here's a commonality between what to do with thoughts between the two practices of mindfulness of breathing and awareness of awareness. In those two practices, each of, them, each of those two practices has its own object of mindfulness, very distinct. Sensations of the breath at the nostrils, for example. Well, those sensations of breath at the nostrils are not thoughts, right? It's not conceptual. Therefore, if any thought comes up, you just release it instantly. And it's not a case of noting it Oh, hello, thought like, oh, hello, Maria, you just came in. Oh, hello, Mira, yeah, nice to see you again. How are you doing? Oh, good, okay, see you later. It's not like that. It's like Maria crops up, by, by Maria, you know, just gone immediately. <laughs> just like, no, like that. We're not lingering there. We're not taking any interest. It's just, uh-uh, release it, right? That's in mindfulness of breathing. And if anything, it's even more so in awareness of awareness. You might recall the lovely metaphor of the duel between the swordsman and the archer. Remember that one? It pertains exactly to this practice. Now I think you remember, yeah? So there's the archer over there, maybe 50 paces away. And it's a duel between the two. And one has, has, is, is a fencer, that is one of the swords, those very slender swords, right? A foil, it's called a foil in English, I believe. And so it's a duel between the two of them. The archer there has a, a quiver of arrows, and the archer's looking, so I'm, let's imagine I'm the archer, and I'm trying to, you know, get you with my arrows. So I'm watching, and I pull back, and you're watching me, and I'm watching you, and then I release. As soon as that arrow comes, the arch, the sword, I'm the archer, you're the swordsman, or the fencer, as soon as that arrow comes, you just flick it. You just flick it. That's why you got one of those very fast. You don't have a William Wallace kind of six-foot sword. You know, you know, those little flicky swords. And so you have a foil, and you just flick it aside. But then as soon as it's gone by, you're ready. And you don't know whether I'm going to pull out the next arrow five seconds later, three seconds, ten seconds. You don't know what's coming. It's not rhythmic. But there you are, just hovering right in the moment. And as soon as you see that arrow in flight, you flick it. So there you are. You're in awareness of awareness, and you're hovering right there. Now, this is why you can get so wired, so totally hyper, 
And this is why it's so important to be very deeply relaxed. Otherwise, you just get strung out during this practice. But if you've really built up to it through mindfulness of breathing, maybe settling the mind, then you're vigilantly aware, hovering right there in the awareness of awareness. But as soon as any thought comes up, you are the fencer. Any thought comes up, just, just like that. It's like a little flick of the finger. It's not a big thing like, oh, I can't stand it. So many thoughts are coming up. This really pisses me off. No, it's just gone. That's it. So as much as possible, you just maintain a flow of non-conceptual awareness. This is the teaching of Maitripa, the great Mahasiddha Maitripa. He teaches it in the book, he's cited in the book, um, A Spacious Path to Freedom. His Holiness taught me this practice. Gen Lamrimba taught me this practice. Geshe Rapten taught me the practice. So it's very deep. And the Buddha and the Buddha Shakyamuni taught the practice as well. Called it Vinyana Kasina. Okay? So just release them instantly and come right back to that utter simplicity of the awareness of awareness and maintain that as homogeneously as you can. Okay? Good. I'm going to read one now. The last, last oh, thing about the same practice yes. is uh, this exercise of, of withdrawing at attention and, and mm -hmm. is to be kept or there is a moment that you just release and be like the... the, the Defensor, that's it. Yeah. Uh, the, this oscillation movement of the release and the contraction, release and contraction, this crops up. I think it's very skillful means. And the only place I've seen it has been in the Nyingma tradition, the Dzogchen tradition, but it crops up repeatedly. So it's not just in that one text by Padmasambhava. I find it very, very skillful. And I've actually taken that element of the arousal and release, and I've applied that over to mindfulness of breathing, just because I find it so helpful to really release as you breathe out, and then to arouse the attention as breathing in. It just seems so natural, and it really is helpful. So I've, I've taken that from Dzogchen tradition and applied that to Anapanasati, right? So, but your question is, do you need to continue that all the way along? You, following the teachings of Padmasambhava, what you really do is you, you, you continue with that oscillation for as long as it's helpful, for as long as it's helpful. Every time you're releasing, releasing into space, and bear in mind too, when you're releasing into space, this does not mean that you're visualizing, that you're visualizing some membrane, some bubble, something, that you're visualizing something, getting something bigger, 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 like a balloon, and then the balloon contracts back to itself. It's not like that, okay? So no balloon getting big and getting small. There's no visualization practice. It's just releasing into space with no object, with no object that you latch onto, no sign, right? Just releasing into space with no object and then drawing the awareness back in upon itself. So it's like no object, but sustaining the thread of awareness of awareness and then coming in and just really awareness of awareness, right? Like that. Now, the release is extremely helpful for overcoming, lack, uh, for overcoming excitation. The inversion is very helpful for overcoming laxity. So there you are, complete package for achieving shamatha. There's going to come a point when it seems almost like outgrowing counting the breaths. People may, if they find counting the breaths really helpful, they may want to continue that all the way up to stage four. Could happen. Some people don't like it at all. That's fine. You don't need to practice it. But some people find, oh, it's so helpful. That little count just brings me back, maintains the continuity. They may want to continue counting the breaths up until stage four. At stage four, you can sit for an hour and you never disengage from the object, in which case, why are you counting? Now it's just redundant. You know, it, it does, it's, it's clutter. 
it's cluttered. So now, for heaven's sakes, get rid of the trainer wheels on your bike and just ride your bike without the counting. In a similar fashion, this release and contraction, release and contraction, it's like counting the breaths. Okay? Useful. But at some point, you may find, you know, I'm maintaining that flow whether or not I release and contract. I'm just vividly in an ongoing flow. There is an awareness of awareness. At that point, just release. And you don't release out, you don't release in, you just release right in the middle. And you let awareness rest in its own place. And then you just stay there. Yeah, long term. Yeah. Good. So now, let's see. I'm going to read one. Of, like, so here's a, we have a bit of time here. So here's a more theoretical one, very deep. And I won't ignore it. I, but I haven't read all of Carissa's yet. It's really, it looks at me. All right, when it comes to the object of refutation, how do you establish Buddha nature? When it comes to the object of refutation. Mm, that's not the way to establish Buddha nature. That is, you're taking like, when you're cooking a cake, when you're cooking a cape, how exactly do you plant tomatoes? It's a little bit two different things, okay? When we talk of object of reputation, we're really talking about vipassana and this is Madhyamaka Vipassana, and really identifying the object of reputation, refuting that, and realizing the emptiness of inherent nature. Buddha nature really isn't part of that mix, all right? So a little bit of term, a little, little bit of kind of, uh, how do you say, problem with terminology here. But now there's clarification. I mean, being unconstructed, unchangeable, in the sense that it could not be something different than it is, quite true. Permanent, once realized, you can't lose it. Oh, that's not true. How distinct is it from Upanishadic Atman? I think I'm going to set that one aside because then we'd have to have a whole seminar on Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta versus Dvaita Vedanta, and how does relate the Vedanta and Atman relate to the Jiva and the Jiva the Brahman and so forth. So I think I won't try to do comparative mystical studies right now, but um, just focus on, Bud on Buddhist understanding of Buddha nature. How is that Buddha nature? How is it that the Buddha nature properties can't be refuted? Oh, they can be refuted. Buddha nature doesn't exist. How is that? <laughs> a lot of people think, well, if it doesn't refute, it just doesn't. Any I don't see it. There. Any more questions? <laughs> it's good enough for a lot of people. I don't see it. As, as Woody Allen said, what you see is what you get. If you don't see it, well, you don't get it. All righty. That was his little words of wisdom or whatever, his best, I think it was his best shot. Um, Buddha nature, two very different ways of understanding it. I mean, certainly there are more than two, but here are two. And they both have noble traditions behind them, so I'm not setting up one is right, one's wrong, one's better, one's worse, not, doing, not going there at all. I'm really following His Holiness Dalai Lama on this one, who is, I would say, extraordinarily trained in the Galupa tradition. I mean, he's one of the greatest geishas living. Some people would say he is the greatest. But he's also had very in-depth training from Dingo Kenzir Rinpoche and other great lamas in the Dzogchen tradition. And he embraces them both as complementary. There we are. He's taught both. He's taught both. And he's given spectacular teachings on both. So his own comment here is that when it comes to something like the Buddha nature, if we look at this from the Galupa perspective, and a number of you have studied Galupa fairly extensively, what is the Buddha nature? It is your capacity for achieving perfect enlightenment. It is implicitly at the affirmation that your mind is not intrinsically veiled, afflicted, and so forth, that right now if we say, for Laura, 
from a Google Looper perspective, we say, for, for no, I, mean, I don't know about Laura. I'm saying, speak, speak for myself. Because maybe, I don't know, maybe she's a Dakini. I could be in deep trouble here. So, but I know for myself, I'm an ordinary guy. So I can say, okay, is there any, from a Glooper perspective, is there, is there any aspect of Alan Wallace that is Buddha? Does Alan have one Buddha quality? I mean, full-fledged, this is a quality of Buddhahood. The answer is no. I don't have Buddha's compassion. I don't have Buddha's power. I don't have Buddha's wisdom. 18 qualities, whatever quality, Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. No, 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 no. None of them. Why? Because I'm not a Buddha. So there we go. So I don't have any Buddha qualities at all. As a sentient being, do I have the capacity to realize Buddhahood? Yeah. Me and the cockroaches and those cute little worms that trickle along like, like that. So they and me both, we, we have Buddha nature. You know? So yeah, I'm a sentient being, so I have the capacity, and all I need to do is bring together the causes and conditions, apply myself to an authentic path, put in my three countless eons, or what have you, and then those qualities that are not here will be here. Because the seeds, the potential is there, but like seeds, they have to be germinated and cultivated. So we can say then, Alan Wallace has a Buddha nature. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to just let it sit there like, you know, like a stump? Or are you going to start cultivating it so it can really give rise and manifest its full potential? So Buddha nature is something I have. In the meantime, who am I? I'm a pathetic, sentient being with six types of suffering, three types of suffering, uh, seeds for being reborn in all six realms of existence, and one really sad puppy. You know, pathetic sentient being, you should all have compassion for me. You can start right now. Okay, that's me. And so there's the Galukpa perspective. And therefore, renunciation, may I be free of the causes of suffering and suffering and the causes of suffering, extending that to bodhicitta, develop the six perfections and so forth. But what I've got right now is pretty much a mess. But it's not intrinsically and absolutely a mess. So there's a perspective, and it's the perspective of a sentient being on Alan Wallace. And it's an authentic perspective. It's not, it's not false, right? Now there's the Dzogchen perspective of this, and His, and His Holiness citing one great Sakya master said, but if a Buddha looked at me, looked at this sentient being, because I'm giving myself as an example, because I know that I am not manifestly a Buddha. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Buddha. But if a Buddha looked upon this sentient being here with the vision of, of a Buddha, would the Buddha see just 100% sentient being, or would the Buddha see something more. In the Kalachakra Tantra, there's a statement, there are no Buddhas apart from sentient beings. There's no Buddha. There is no Buddha apart from sentient beings. That's an interesting statement. Right? So from this perspective, and let's just call it the Dzogchen perspective, but this is how His Holiness glossed it. The Glupa is looking at this person from the perspective of conventional reality, from the perspective of a sentient being. But then there's the more ultimate perspective, or pure perspective, Buddha perspective, looking and seeing here that there is someone here, and it's not that Alan Wallace has a Buddha nature, it is Alan Wallace is a Buddha nature, and Alan Wallace being Buddha nature has obscurations. So rather than identifying myself as an obscured, afflictive, sentient being who has a Buddha nature, I am Buddha nature, and my nature is obscured by my mental afflictions and other obscurations. So it's a different orientation. The orientation of thinking, I have, a sen I have a Buddha nature, means roll up your sleeves, get to work, and let's follow the Lam Rim and develop, develop, develop until we achieve enlightenment. And the Dzogchen perspective, if I am a Buddha nature, but I do have obscurations, that's why I'm not manifesting 
you know, all the Buddha qualities. You haven't, haven't levitated once, you know. So many things I've not done. You know? But from this perspective, rather than thinking, what do I need to do to develop my Buddha nature? The question is rather, what can I stop doing that is obscuring my Buddha nature? And I won't even say my Buddha nature, the Buddha nature that is me. Right? So in Dzogchen, Rikpa Ngotrepa, to identify Rikpa, which is none other than Buddha nature, is to identify who you are. Not something you have. Oh, good, I got a Buddha nature. I'm so glad to have Rikpa. Good to see you, good, good to see you Rikpa. Rikpa is not an object of awareness. Right? It is the pristine nature of awareness. So these are different perspectives. At the same time, in the Galukpa tradition, there is a complete affirmation, going back to Tsongkhapa, and that is that there is already the innate mind of clear light. That's not something you get by being really good. It's not something you get by developing stage of generation and completion. It's not something that wasn't there, and then one day you get it, if you're really a great yogi. The innate mind of clear light, well, it's already there. Well, as Holiness said, yeah, that innate mind of clear light, that's Rikpa. Rikpa's already there. So, it's not something that one realizes by refuting some object of reputation. But now I'll just speak from the Dzogchen perspective. And that is... They're very strong on this point. Very, or let's say strong means emphatic on this point. That Rikpa is... It's beyond the whole domain of conceptual elaborations. So whatever you think, they, they speak of the eight extremes of conceptual elaboration, such as exist and not exist, permanent and impermanent, going and coming, birth and cessation, movement, this kind of thing. So these kind of classic frameworks, fundamental frameworks that we have, a central theme in Dzogchen is the realization of Rikpa transcends all of those even existence and non-existence. So when we consider, if we should ask, well, does Rikpa exist? Pristine awareness, Buddha nature, does it exist? Then the question we should be asking is, before answering that question, before jumping out on thin ice, what do you mean by exist? What's your definition? Because the word exist doesn't define itself. Buddha didn't define it for us. God didn't define it for us. Nature didn't define it for us. Exist, not exist. These, these are words. They have definitions. Who makes up the definitions? We do. And they're different. From in, in a single language, they will shift over, over history. They do. The word pity used to be a lovely word. Now it stinks. Oh, I so pity Carissa. Uh, screw you. <laughs> if I said that 100 years ago, oh, what a compassionate man. He pities me. You know, well, the word's not nice anymore, but it used to be. 19th century, it was a nice word. So these words shift, but the real point here is that the word exist has a meaning, and we decided what it was. We means the conceptual mind. So now we're gonna, we've got this little construct, exist versus not exist. How about virtual reality? How about the square root of minus one? How about pi? No, not apple pie. I mean the other pie. Always thinking about dessert. The square root of minus one should have been the trick, you know. Exist, not exist. Well, 
it's up to us. We define it. So it's the conceptual mind, the mundane, ordinary human being, English-speaking, Spanish-speaking, Bulgarian-speaking human mind that comes up with our definitions. And sometimes rooted in Judaism, rooted in Christianity, Aristotelian tradition, and so forth and so on. So to have this human construct and then ask of Rikpa, which transcends all construct, constructs, do you fit into our construct? Which, which of the boxes do you fit into? Non-existence or existence? It's a stupid question. That is, or it's, it's an inappropriate question. It's not stupid like you're un, unintelligent, but it's inappropriate because it transcends the boxes. So if one had asked, if one has been really trained in prasangika, and one thinks, hey, what is emptiness? Emptiness is absent, absence of inherent nature. What does that mean? Phenomena do not exist independently of the conceptual designation of them. Right? Patricia. Patricia is human being. There's Patricia. Conceptual designation. Does Patricia, this human being, does Patricia exist independently of any conceptual designation? Of the name Patricia, of people thinking that's Patricia, does... Patricia already exists by her own nature before the conceptual designation comes along. Was she already waiting to be labeled prior to and independent of any conceptual designation? If you think so, then you're deluded, according to Madhyamaka, because Patricia rises independence upon her own and others' conceptual designation. I am Patricia. That's Patricia. But you do not exist prior to and independent of all conceptual de designation. If you did exist, prior to and independent of conceptual designation, you would exist by your own inherent nature. That's exactly what does not exist. So now let's be really sneaky. Rikpa. Does Rikpa exist by its own inherent nature? Or does it, or does it exist only independent upon conceptual designation? In other words, I'm going to slap you this way or I'm going to slap you that way. <laughs> Which way would you like to be slapped? And when you know that I'm going to slap you no matter what you say, if you say, okay, it exists prior to conceptual designation, slap. It's, you mean it's inherently existent? You've just reified Buddha nature. Wrong. Okay, got it. Uh, okay, it exists independent upon conceptual designation. Wrong. You mean if you don't conceptually designate, the Buddha nature isn't there? You lose your Buddha nature if you stop thinking? That hurts. <laughs> Try that on a cold winter day. We did it. Five hours at a stretch in Dharamsala in midwinter. Your hands really get red. You hurt after a while. So, when there's no right answer, when there's no right answer, when you can't say, Rikpa does exist independently of conceptual designation. Because then, tsa. okay, it, it exists independent upon conceptual designation. Tsa. When there's no right answer, then you know it's a wrong question. You've couched the question in a way that's inappropriate. You're asking, you're superimposing concepts on something that transcends concepts. It's beyond existence and non-existence. It's not inherently existent, nor is it existent independence upon conceptual designation. It's this is beyond that territory, and you won't get there with logic. So in the Uttara Tantra, in the, in the multiple sutras and commentaries pertaining to the third turning of the wheel of Dharma, 
as this is categorized by categorized in the Nyingma tradition, unlike the Galupa, just a different framing, you don't realize Rigpa. You don't realize Buddha nature, Tathagata Garbha. You don't realize Tathagata Garbha by logic. You may use logic to realize emptiness. And then you go beyond logic, of course, but the syllogisms, the many reasonings of Nagarjuna and so forth, they were there to be used. And you may refute inherent existence using the syllogisms of Nagarjuna. But that's not how you realize Buddha nature. But not by clapping your hands and being really smart and giving really snazzy syllogisms. Not how it happens. You realize Buddha nature with faith. With faith. But faith in what? Faith in the Dalai Lama? Faith in Maitreya? Buddha? Faith in Padmasambhava? Samantabhadra? Faith in what? Dzogchen teachings? Tantras? Vajrayana? Faith in what? Alma? Faith in what? Faith in what? Faith in yourself. Faith in yourself. We'll end on that point, but Gyatso Rinpoche, my beloved and revered teacher, speaking to some of his disciples who've been training, studying with him for years, they were complaining, or at least they were dissatisfied, that they hadn't gained greater realization. They'd been, some of them, training for 20, 30 years, receiving teachings, going little retreats, more teachings, reading Dharma books, more teachings, little retreats, and so forth, and still, still going after, you know, Try, always struggling to get enough money and struggling here and struggling there and marriages breaking up and losing jobs and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, where's Dzogchen? This isn't the great perfection. This is the great imperfection. <laughs> great series of imperfections. And this, these teachings aren't working. And uh, he said, you know, you know why your practice isn't working? He said, it's not because you don't have enough faith in the Lama or in the Dharma, or in Dzogchen, the reason your practice isn't giving you the results that you wish for, you don't have enough faith in yourself. So when you speak of faith here, it's not faith in dogma, belief, creed, lineages, treatises, and so forth. It's faith in your own Buddha nature. What's that faith? It's not a dogmatic assertion. I believe, okay, I believe in Buddha nature, you know, it's an intuitive affirmation. And it's, in a way, speaking a little bit poetically, it's Buddha nature affirming itself. It's not something else affirming it. It's that quiet awareness of knowing who you are. So that's how you realize Buddha nature. Buddha nature knowing its own face, knowing its own nature. You don't get there with logic. It doesn't defy logic. It's not illogical. It just then, it simply is there are limits to logic, and Buddha nature is on the other side of the limit, the other side of the boundary. Okay? Hola, so? Very good. Tonight, if you wish, when you get into bed in your last session, supine position, you might try just releasing all objects and just resting there, as I suggested earlier. Just resting there in awareness that you haven't fallen asleep yet. 
And that is to say, just the awareness of awareness. Quietly. And any thought that comes up, just... Not even enough to say, not now. It's too much exertion. Just whatever thought comes up, just... Gone. Release it. Breathe normally, everything relaxed. But just rest. Just knowing consciousness. See if you can fall asleep that way. Okay? Good. Enjoy your dinner. <laughs>